Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Frank LaRose finally filed a financial disclosure form. Odd that the Secretary of State, who enforces filing rules, was really late in filing his own form. It's a story we're talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Layla Tassi, Lisa Garvin, and Laura Johnston. And let's get to Frank LaRose. He is arguably Ohio's worst ever Secretary of State, as we've discussed many times. And he's a candidate for U.S. Senate. And he did finally file his financial disclosure form. And he argues he's just a regular, not wealthy guy. Layla, how do his yeah. assets compare to most Ohioans? Well, yeah, he says that he and his wife, Lauren, own assets worth somewhere between 800000 to $1.9 million. That is quite a range. I mean, I guess on the low end, you could say that qualifies him as a thousandaire, as he recently <laughs> claimed to be when he was talking to his supporters. But on either end of that range, he's far more well-heeled than most Ohioans. His assets include a joint USAA savings account containing somewhere between $500,000 to $1 million in cash, as well as mutual funds. Uh, in his state retirement account worth somewhere between 282000 and 630000 Senate candidates are only required to report their finances in ranges like that. So it's not very specific. His campaign spokesman billed all of this as assets that are well below a million dollars. And he said, Frank is the only candidate in the race without a golden nest egg, a trust fund, or a sweetheart loan from a major bank. By comparison, his opponents, State Senator Matt Dolan of Sugar and Falls and Cleveland businessman Bernie Moreno, are each worth at least $14 million, according to their filings. And while each of those guys disclosed annual income in the range of a million dollars or more, LaRose said his only source of income was his $199,000 state salary plus another $8,500 he was paid as an Army reservist. I don't get why it took so long to file it if he has so little money. Was he counting it with an abacus? <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. It's months late at this point. He got the extensions, so he's not in violation of rules. But it just seems strange that the guys that have, you know, all the complicated wealth were able to get their form in. But this guy, who also is the enforcer of these rules, as I said, took forever to get it in. I That just throws me what, what the delay is here. I mean, chances are he was just taking advantage of the timeline, using all the those recent months to 
throw barbs at his opponents for their wealth and and painting himself as the as the man of the people and then you know trying to squeak this in around the holidays when he thinks no one's quite paying attention <laughs> well i'll posit that the reason he didn't do it is cuz he spent so much time trying to deal with issue 1 in august he was the poster child for that stupid idea that voters right. rightly slammed and he fought like a dog to stop the abortion amendment, which thank God he failed that because otherwise we'd be dealing with what you're seeing in Texas right now. Uh, And so he probably was so busy campaigning instead of doing his duties that it took forever to get it in. I just don't see him how he carries off. I'm a man of the people with Mm -hmm. that level of wealth because most Ohioans do not have that much money. Right. I mean, when you compare him to his opponents uh, in this race, I mean, okay, so on one hand, he's claiming to be closer to the struggle of average Ohioans. But the reality is that the mean net worth in Ohio is $50,000. He's nowhere near that financial experience. But for that matter, neither is Sherrod Brown. You know, his financials look quite similar to LaRose's. Um, I'm not sure you're going to find a politician with a similar financial portfolio to the average Ohioan. I think it's fair to say that none of these guys is living the average experience. No. So what matters most is is action. And Frank LaRose speaks volumes with how he's done Ohioans here in the last, you know, in his time in office. Look, he's reviled widely because of what he did with issue one in August. I ha- I just don't know how you can overcome that. He's getting all that money from outside the state for his campaign. So maybe he can thinks he can buy his way in the way J.D. Vance did. But he's pretty much reviled for for violating the common decency of fair play and trying to get that thing passed. And he was the face of it. So he's no no running away from it. You still see it. People still attack him regularly. He should just drop out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio has created a home buying program to help people deal with mortgage rates that are the highest they've been since the early 80s. Lisa, is this legit? Does it really appeal to everybody? How does it work? Well, it allegedly appeals to everybody, but it really will probably benefit those who have the means to at least put some money into an account. So this is called Ohio Homebuyer Plus. They'll be creating specialist savings accounts at participating banks for potential homebuyers. They will pay interest about one to four points higher than the normal going rate, and any money deposited in these accounts may qualify for income tax deductions as well. And as I said, Ohioans of all income levels can join, you can keep anywhere from $100 to $100,000 in these special accounts. They're only to be used for down payments and closing costs within five years. Uh, Like I said, uh, you know, helping people with in reach would probably be more beneficial, but it can help some people of more modest means save a little bit of money each, you know, at each month or each paycheck and then, you know, have that accrue interest. Ohio Treasurer Robert Sprague will administer the program. He says they want to retain and attract young families with this. Uh, The money for these special accounts, for the interest rate on these accounts, will come from Ohio's investment portfolio profits. They want to begin it next month, but we do not know the list of participating banks yet. Sprague says it will be critical to the success of this program that banks join in on this. The typical savings account average right now nationally is about six-tenths of a percent. Um, Some online banks give up to four to five percent. So this would be a pretty big boost for a lot of people. 
Yeah, it sounds like on the surface that it's a good deal. And even though I'm always suspicious when the state does things like this, it we, we didn't find anything to say this is cooked or crooked. I was fascinated by the details in Jeremy Pelzer's story about the way they're going to try to enforce it. It seems right. like there's some sneaky stuff people might try to do and the state's going to try and make sure you can only use this to buy a house. And if you cheat or try to buy two houses or something, right. they, they're going to charge you with a crime. Right. You have to certify on your application for this account that the money will only be used in home cost. Fraudulent or multiple accounts will result in criminal charges of falsification, which range from a first degree misdemeanor to a third degree felony. And participating banks must report all withdrawals to the treasurer's office from these accounts. It'll be interesting to see if somebody tries to scam it, because like you said, the interest rate is very high, comparatively speaking. And when there's a buck involved, people will try to cheat. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Laura, what's the controversy over the idea of paving the towpath trail in the Cuyahoga Valley National Park? Wouldn't that make it easier for bike riding? Well, yes. And the bike riders are super behind this plan, but the people who walk on the towpath trail or run don't want it paved because the crushed limestone that has been there since it originally opened in the early 1990s is much easier on your joints. But it's not uncommon for national parks to have paved paths. And the good thing about this is that it wouldn't be just black asphalt, like a ribbon of asphalt winding its way through the beautiful natural woods they're trying to make it earth colored and it's a chip and seal and so it wouldn't look as bad as just like a road and they say that it actually helps preserve the historic character of the towpath i mean remember this is where the mules pulled canal boats for the ohio erie canal in the 19th century and that's why this originally existed and they've taken the path and it's going to eventually be 110 miles long all the way from new philadelphia to lake erie 20 miles of it is through the national park but there's a lot of hubbub over this change which is part of a bunch of changes that the federal government wants to make in the park yeah i i'm just surprised it's controversial it seems like with the limestone trail how many times have they closed that trail down because it washes away and and i mean they're closing it now they're closing sections of it during the week for the next couple of months mm -hmm. because there, there's so many problems with it whereas the asphalt lasts longer right yeah it, it erodes because you know hard rains and we get more of those these days and they get when it's wet then the the bike tires go on it and it gets rutted. And then if, you know, this is open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So it, it freezes in the winter and then the ruts get worse. I don't know. I just, when they, when I first heard this, I was like, oh, like that's just sounds terrible because it was always just this nice path through the woods, along the river, through historic areas. You can see the locks of the canals. You can see old mills. Um, you know, you go right through peninsula and it just seemed so like an anathema to it. But I understand their thinking here. They say there's been a lot of um, an, a rise in user conflicts, such as accidents between cyclists and pedestrians, conflicts between visitors and dogs emerging uses like e-bikes, special permit holders for running races. I'm not sure how a paved path is going to fix any of that, but they do say it should cut down on accidents because the most bike accidents that happen are where the path changes forms because there's a lot of boardwalks in there. It goes through wetlands and that can be a bit of a dip 
and um, also riding your bikes on boardwalks where, I mean, it can just get dangerous because there's the, um, the lip of it on the side. You, I, I definitely have, have at least one time crashed my bike on the tailpath. But, but I'll, I'll tell you what, though, bicyclists on that path are rude as heck. <laughs> they are, I, it's dangerous to be a pedestrian on parts of the towpath because they just ride right by you. They don't even warn you that they're coming sometimes. They really act like they own the path. Why not? I, I, I want to say that it is it is much harder on the joints to run on pavement than it is on the crushed stone. That is a fact. So, so why not yeah. both? Why not have the asphalt for the main part of it and then have on the side uh, a, a crushed limestone next to it? I would think that the, the paved path would keep the limestone from washing away. Why can't we have the both best of both worlds? I mean, you would definitely be cutting down a whole lot of, yeah, you'd be cutting down a whole lot of trees to do that. We're talking about a single lane path. It is not very wide. And so you want to double that. There are trees on either side of most of this path, or it goes right up along the river. And like I said, there are boardwalk sections, which that'd be really expensive. So that's not part of this plan at all. Okay. Well, interesting controversy about the National Park. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Remember Packard Automobiles? Me neither. I'm not that old. But the Packard is making a comeback right here in Northeast Ohio. Hand-built, too. Layla, you get the most interesting and amusing story of the day. What is it about? The Packard company was known for building these high-quality luxury automobiles before World War II. The vehicle price was five or six times that of its American contemporaries. They were handmade vehicles, made in war in Ohio. And they were exported in, in record numbers to Europe where they competed with Rolls-Royce and Mercedes-Benz before they became obsolete. But now it could be making a comeback thanks to a guy named Scott Andrews who has a dream of building a new Packard manufacturing facility in Medina. Back in 2019, he was driving to a job, he was an internet consultant, is, when he saw a vehicle for sale on the side of the road. He didn't recognize this make and he called his dad and said, have you ever heard of a Packard? And his dad enthusiastically started telling him about the history of this really interesting vehicle. And that's where their v adventure began. Andrews learned that he has a lot in common with the company's original founder, J.W. Packard. Packard was a luxury watch collector, and Andrews makes watches as a hobby. Andrews also went to CSU's James J. Nance Business College, and James Nance was the last president of the Packard Motor Company. So there was all this, you know, he this was a calling. It was calling out to him this opportunity. And Andrews collaborated with a group of really smart friends. They started actually building new versions of 1930s Packards. They found a company in Nebraska that makes all the parts for those vehicles. Andrews researched and now owns the legal rights to the Packard brands, the patents, the tra trademarks, which was a really big step for moving this company forward. And then they found a facility in Medina and began working 12 hours a day to hand make the 1934 convertible that now stands at the center of their store it was completed and moved the day before their ribbon cutting. And they're working with city leaders in Medina to open a full manufacturing facility in Medina. So far, you can't buy one of these cars, but you can stop by their store where they sell a variety of Packard branded products. You can see the model car and you can start planning your own dream car. I, I was fascinated by this story by um, 
by uh, who, who wrote that story? It was Sam Boyer, right? Sam Laura? Boyer. Yeah. And she is just a terrific freelancer for the Suns. And it popped up last week. And I'm like, wow, how did, how did this happen? How is this here? Um, history, you, you've heard of Packard Automobiles. I didn't know anything really about the history until I read the story. Just fascinating. And the photo that ran with it of that car, it's an elegant machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't imagine how expensive these will be when they hit the market. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially if they continue to build them by hand. Is that going to be, will these be built? I know they said that they that the engines will all be, you know, state of the art, modern, uh, you know, modern engines, but uh, I don't know about the, the rest of them. I mean, will the car be assembled by hand? That's that's going to be a pricey luxury item. Yeah, Rolls Royces are built by hand. Oh goodness! So, and there is a whole market for these old cars. You know, people love them. I used to work in Auburn, Indiana, and they have the Auburn Cord Duesenberg Festival. And those cars aren't made anymore, but they still have the old showroom. And yeah, it's it's a whole love. I mean, people do this because they love it. And we are going to have more photos. Dave Pekowitz is going to do a photo gallery. They did say in the story that they're built with some modern safety measures because those old cars are not safe. I mean, let's face it, no seatbelts, no airbags. But the story did say they're incorporating some modern technologies. They're not death mobiles. Fascinating story. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com. A whole lot of people are reading it. It's been one of our top stories since last week. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Lisa, where's the nation's first electric vehicle charging station to be funded by the 2021 federal infrastructure law that was so controversial and Packards will we not be lining up for it? <laughs> yeah, the first EVGO charging station, which was funded by this bill, is going up at the Pilot Travel Center on I-70 at US-42 in Madison County, which is west of Columbus. This can charge four vehicles at once, up to 80% power in just 20 to 40 minutes, depending on the type of battery that you have. This is the first of 27 EVGO stations coming to Ohio. They'll be popping up at gas stations, restaurants, and stores along I-70, 71, 76, 77, and I-90 before the end of next year. This is being paid for with $18 million of Ohio's share of the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program. Another $6 million comes from the businesses that will be hosting these stations, Pilot, EVgo, Meyer Stores, TH Midwest, ChargeNet, and Equilon Shell. Um, we do have to point out that Ohio Republicans, you know, have been working on electric vehicles and networks because they feel that it's key to our economic development plans in the future. Uh, Ford, GM, and Honda are spending $6 billion on EV car and battery plants right here in Ohio. That's over 91,000 jobs, the second most auto jobs in the nation right now. But you do have some people that don't like it. Our Republican Senator J.D. Vance criticized government intervention in the EV industry. You know, he says, you know, the cost and auto jobs and battery range are all concerns for him. 
Well, I read a story over the weekend about the difficulty of getting Americans to buy into this. There's a lot more interest in hybrid cars, which still have the gas engine to charge the battery when you need it, than in the EVs. It's that people aren't really getting into it yet. They're, they're, they're selling more, but it's not the trend. Um, I thought it was interesting that the hybrid remains favored over that. Laura, you saw one of these battery plants being built when you went to Louisville over the weekend, right? I did. I drove down there and I was like, it's over by the Jeffersonville outlets south of Columbus. And I was like, what is that? It's massive. And there's all these fields around it that you're like, are they building in there too? Because there's all these tamped down areas with looks like plywood. And then I, I looked it up and I was like, ah, that's the that's the Marysville battery plant. So yeah, it's gigantic. And what they hope for is more you know, businesses around there will build up because of it. But you're always the one saying, why would you own an electric vehicle? Because you'd have to stop on road trips, you know, to, to fill up the battery. And I think that as that technology improves, it's going to be more palatable for people. But I also think it's cool idea for a second car for your family, like the one that you can just zip around town running errands and going to work and dropping your kid off at soccer practice. And yeah, I've read a, another story about there's battery technology being developed with a different compound than is used now. I can't remember what it is that would greatly extend a battery life and pretty much end the controversy about having to stop so frequently, which we need because I don't think the technology now is going to have an appeal to anybody that has to drive more than to the grocery store. But they're, they're being strategic, though, in their placement, at least with the infrastructure money. They're placing them along, you know, major highways. But I saw an EVgo station just the other day. It's at uh, Som Center at Eastgate Shopping Mall. I was kind of shocked to see it. But so it, it is an EVgo, but obviously not a federally funded EVgo charging mm-hmm. station. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Laura, what do we know about the claims that explosive devices have been placed in schools throughout Ohio in the past couple of days? Well, thankfully, we know there's no credible specific threat here. But administrators across Ohio reported these hoaxes. They were districts across the state, I think almost every district in Lorain County, a whole bunch in Cuyahoga, and then weirdly in Texas. So I don't really know why these two states were targeted. But these are this is part of swatting, which is the word that means mass calls made from a single location, far from where threats take place. And they attempt to get responses from police and local officials. But the FBI checked this out. There was no issue. So as far as I know, no school was canceled on Monday because of them. And from the emails posted on Facebook, because this is where everybody talks about these things. It looks like they were anti-Semitic threats and there were bombs involved in the threats. Yeah, it's one of those where you've got to you've got to imagine what this is going to do to the psyche of kids, right? Every time mm-hmm. you go to school, it's not this safe place that it's always been. There's always alerts. You know, they've been battened down to stop school shootings. And you just have to wonder what what it means when a kid is going to school and they know that police are there and they've been searching the place because somebody was making bomb threats. Yeah, I didn't even talk about this one with my kids. Our district was not targeted, but our superintendent still sent out an email on Sunday saying we weren't targeted, but that he they're very aware of it. But you're right. Kids today, like we had fire drills and tornado drills. They have, in, you know, intruder drills and they know that they're supposed to hide and lock the door and turn out the lights. And I mean, my daughter has talked about throwing books and sharpened pencils if they have to. And she's 10. I mean, that's 
terrifying as a grown-up to grow up with that kind of fear that every time you go to school, you don't know what's going to happen. I don't know the long-term effect of that. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've seen plenty of calls in recent years to have social workers accompany police to crises to de-escalate conflicts before they get to a point requiring police use of force. Layla, what is Cleveland doing in this regard? City Council last week signed off on letting the city enter a new contract with the Alcohol, Drug Addiction, and Mental Health Services Board of Cuyahoga County to expand what's known as the city's co-response police model. This means that the city is hiring social workers to team up with police who are specially trained in crisis intervention to handle some mental health calls. The approach has been in practice since early 2020 as part of a grant-funded pilot project that has stationed one of these teams in each of the five police districts. Now, they're with the help of $5 million from the American Rescue Plan Act, Cleveland Police will add a second team of co-responders to each district, and they'll work staggered shifts from their colleagues who were already working in this capacity to increase the availability of this important service for people. The, the hope is that these teams of responders can de-escalate situations, that they will connect people to social support services or take them to an emergency room for treatment instead of taking them to jail. This contract with the Adams Board will cover all 10 of the teams for the next three years, and expect, it's expected that um, that the city will explore in the future the possibility of embracing what is called a care response model in Cleveland. That's when only social workers respond to calls for help without police at all. Yet, I mean, that that's that's definitely a concept that you're going to want to study and really chew on for a while before you go down that path, right? Well, that that what they're doing, we should point out, it's not defunding the police. A lot of people have tried to turn this social worker thing into a defunding the police thing to oh, politicize yeah. it. That's not what this is. This doesn't reduce police. It doesn't take money from police. It's an ad. What you're talking about, though, evolving to could ultimately, I guess, reduce police jobs because if you are responding to a whole class of stuff that police now have responsibility for and they're no longer there, you would need fewer police, right? Well, I'm not sure how or whether that would run afoul of any union agreements and things like that. I think at the moment, this is more like augmenting the police force with another uh, another kind of of provider. So it's uh, it's adding help to a force you know that's already already strapped <laughs> and I having like a hard time idea. responding. I like the idea, though, of the social worker and the police officer going together. I mean, for yeah. one, people need to see the police is helpful. I mean, the, the, the police spend so much time arresting gun-toting carjackers and things that their image gets tarnished, that arrest they made after the big Cleveland Heights chase last week. If you watch that video, they just seem like they're torqued up on adrenaline and screaming, but you're chasing a guy who just did a horrible chase and killed somebody. So if they go out to scenes with social workers, they can come across as more gentle community servants. I also, if, if I were a social worker showing up at some of these scenes, I think I'd want the police officer there in case my talents aren't enough to calm the situation down. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what I find a little bit uh, disconcerting about the model where you would only send social workers to, to calls where you would normally send police. Because what if they're stepping into something that, I mean, I'm assuming that the social workers are not armed 
to protect themselves. And so who knows what, what scenario they might be walking into. And one thing that kind of struck me was also that, you know, they were saying that the social workers under this model will be teamed up with specially trained officers who have crisis intervention skills. I would think by now they all should be specially trained in crisis intervention. We're years into this consent decree. Everyone should know on this police force how to handle mental health calls and emergencies of that nature. Yeah, it's just right now the police are so overtaxed. Mm-hmm. There's not enough of them. They're they're just running so hard mm-hmm. that I, th- I just having the social worker there I think can ameliorate some of the conflict, but we need the police for these tense situations because they do go bad and the police are the ones that are trained to make sure people get protected. Very interesting uh, approach by Cleveland. It's another one of these moves by Justin Bibb. This is why people elected him to do things differently. And he's so far living up to that promise. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I would have thought the answer was Ukraine, given the Russian invasion, but it's not. Laura, what country is the number one source of refugees these days, both in Cleveland and statewide? It's the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and that's obviously in Akron. So in 20, or sorry, Akron, Africa, in 2023, 46% of all refugees that came to Ohio were from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which, by the way, is a separate country than the Republic of the Congo. So that's, uh, sorry. More than 2,800 refugees came from 35 countries in the last fiscal year. 30% made their way to Cleveland. That included 237 new Cleveland area residents. And obviously, the Congo is the biggest portion of that. The country's had a whole lot of problems, which uh, political violations, there's gender-based violence, tribalism. They've been happening for decades. And about 7 million Congolese people have been displaced. They go to different camps, some in Rwanda, some in Burundi, some in Uganda, and then they figure out where to go from there. There's actually more Congolese refugees in Columbus and Dayton than in Cleveland, but this is just number one for everyone in Ohio and a lot of other states actually too. I had no idea. Did anybody know that, would anybody have guessed correctly which country? No. No. Yeah. Very, very interesting yeah. story by uh, by Zachary. It's on Cleveland.com. Check it out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Tuesday. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening. We will return on Wednesday. Wednesday.